Welcome to Live and Learn, a production of the Honors Program at the University of Connecticut. I'm Danielle Shalou, and this is Episode 5 for the week of October 23rd. Halloween is coming up, and Honors for Diversity is hosting their annual My Culture is Not a Costume discussion about how one can show appreciation for a culture without disrespecting members of a cultural group or culturally appropriating their traditions. That'll be on Tuesday, October 24th in the Student Union, room 317. On Wednesday, October 25th, we're celebrating student research, scholarship, and creative projects with the Fall Frontiers poster exhibition in the Wilbur Cross South Reading Room from 5 to 7 p.m. Stop by to see undergraduate students and what they've been up to. And now, a UConn professor who is studying exertional heat stroke, heat illnesses, and hydration to find ways to prevent sudden death during sport and physical activity. My name is uh, Douglas Casa. I'm the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute, um, and I'm professor of kinesiology um, at the University of Connecticut. We spoke with Dr. Casa about his work at the Corey Stringer Institute, working with undergraduates, and what the research has shown. Corey Stringer was an NFL offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings, um, and he died from an exertional heat stroke in August of 2001. Um, He's the only NFL player in history in 100 years to die during a practice or a game. Um, Like I said, had a heat stroke. It was really brutally hot conditions um, on the first day of practice in Minnesota during a a heat wave back in 2001. And he struggled that day in the heat. And then the next morning he came back and it was hot again and he struggled again that day. Um, And unfortunately, he did not have appropriate treatment in terms of rapid cooling. He stayed hypothermic for too long. I mean, he ended up passing away in the middle of the night the, the following day. So I worked with his widow, Kelsey, for many years after as an expert witness on the lawsuits that she had. Um, and when she settled with the NFL, her and Commissioner Goodell from the NFL asked if we would be willing to host a lasting legacy for Corey to try to prevent future things like this um, from happening for, uh, for athletes, warfighters, and laborers. Um, so that's what we've been doing the last seven years. And what is exertional heat stroke? Exertional heat stroke um, happens when people get um, severely hyperthermic or they get too hot. Um, the intensity is too high. The environmental conditions are, you know, could be most likely oppressive. And they have um, um, central nervous system dysfunction, like um, either they're unconscious or have cognitive dysfunction. And if you stay hyperthermic, um, like above 104, 105 range for more than 30 minutes, very likely you'll have long-term complications um, and you could potentially die from the incident. So the appropriate best practices treatment for heat stroke is cooling someone down um, as fast as possible. What is the research or work that you're doing at the Institute? Yeah, so we have kind of two big things that we do at the Corey Stringer Institute. One side that we do is anything related to enhancing athletic performance or military performance. A person who has to do intense physical activity, especially in the heat, how can you enhance performance? Things like body cooling strategies, you know, keeping your temperature down, heat acclimatization, getting used to the heat, hydration, um, the influence of like certain medications or supplements or different clothing or textiles or things like that. So anything that you can do to enhance performance. The second uh, half of kind of what we do at KSI has to do with the medical and clinical side of things. Um, What are the best ways to um, prevent, recognize, um, treat, um, and help people recover from an exertional heat stroke? Um, And then other things related to preventing sudden death during physical activity, whether they be, you know, cardiac conditions or, or, or head injuries or other conditions that could put people at risk. So 
the medical clinical side is like half and enhancing athletic performance, especially in the heat, is um, kind of half, I would say, of what we do. And what are some of the findings that you've you've seen over mm-hmm. the over the past several years? So I'd say that probably some of KSI's biggest contributions to the, the medical literature and, and to society at large is um, definitely things that we know about recognizing and treating exertional heat stroke. So what are the right modalities to assess body temperature, for instance? And then um, in terms of what is the best way for cooling a hyperthermic person, um, what are the, the ramifications for a different amount of time that it takes? And we basically, I think, played a big role, and we're proud of the role we've played in terms of getting people to utilize cold water immersion for treatment of heat stroke. And then also the strategy called cool first, transport second. So if someone has a heat stroke at a high school or a college, most of the places now that follow best practices, they cool them on site before shipping them to the hospital because they don't want to lose any of the minutes waiting for an ambulance, waiting to go back to the hospital, waiting to start cooling at the hospital because it takes us out of that 30-minute window we have to get their temperature down rapidly. And then we've also done a myriad of things in the realm of um, preventing heat stroke. But anytime you're preventing heat stroke, like things like heat acclimatization, hydration, body cooling, those are also things that enhance athletic performance in the heat. Um, so we've done a lot of work in that area that I think has contributed to the exercise science, like performance side of things, but also the medical literature. Do you work with undergraduates in research? Oh, yeah. So we're extremely thankful. One of the great, one of the big reasons I think KSI has had success over the last seven years is the undergraduates at the University of Connecticut. Um, So we have about 20 staff that consists of master's students, PhD, postdocs, and professors that are paid by Corey Stringer Institute. Um, But then we had 60 volunteers um, who, so that takes us to like 80 people for our staff and those 60 people were play integral roles in our um, in the research studies that we do. I'll just give you one example. We did a study that we contacted every single high school in America to see the if they had an athletic trainer and the extent of coverage if they did, and if they didn't, why they didn't. So we contacted all 21,000 high schools. And we did that only because of the amazing staff that we have. So we literally had 30 people working on that for like over a year. And did you hear from all 21,000 Well, we contacted schools? all of them up to four times, but we actually had an amazing data set. We actually had ended up having correspondence with like almost 12,000 of the schools, which is incredible for really getting an idea of what's happening nationally. And we're in another project right now that we're back again contacting all of the high schools. And we're down to we're actually right now less than 1,000 left of every high school that we've got information on for the, what we needed for our study. And this is all happening because of the incredible – you know, we have the undergrads here, you know, super smart, super motivated, um, and they come to us because a lot of them have a passion or an interest in sports or medicine and are often a combination of both. What are some of the qualities that a researcher looks for in an undergrad assistant? We don't look for anyone who has experience, per se. Um, we much more look for the interest and the passion, um, the internal motivation, um, someone who just feels a connection with what we're doing. So do some investigation about the labs and the work that's being done at UConn, talk to some professors, and see if your interests line up. When Spencer Matonis, a junior in the honors program studying material science and engineering with a concentration in nanotechnology, went looking for research, he found a business need instead and founded Coalesce, a database for undergrads to find opportunities. Can you talk about the process of founding a startup and how that came to fruition? Absolutely. About October 26 of 2016 is when I first uh, incepted Coalesce and put pen to paper to essentially sketch out the very first uh, structure of the site, 
um, as well as kind of the workflow that currently exists with students getting into research and getting a job, um, how professors get funding, and then kind of how I would like to see it happen. And I took that workflow and made it into a software system. What I, was, what I ended up doing was I founded a software called Bubble, which allows for uh, non-technical website building, essentially. So it's much more design-oriented. It's kind of in between traditional coding and something maybe like Squarespace. Bubble's a nice middle ground, uh, and the design-oriented process was really good for me. So essentially with Bubble, I was able to make an early MVP, so minimal viable product, uh, in about a month. And then once... I got to that stage and I started taking on uh, marketing efforts and tackling data entry stuff um, as well as consumer interviews. I was able to talk to the Bubble community and essentially get a couple uh, developer, freelance developers to work with. So uh, with those developers in place and freelancers for data entry, uh, it's just a big hustle and grind and you're constantly pitching. So I probably end up pitching by proxy, you know, once a day. So I've pitched 365 times more or less. Um, and it's amazing. One thing I was thinking about recently is you can pitch 150 times and you're generally supposed to use the same narrative. You, you want to have a narrative. You want to be able to tell your, your story, how you got into the sector, what's the need, what's the solution, what's the market, you know, in, in two minutes in the same exact format, you tell it the same way every time. And it's amazing how after 200 times or so, something new might click and you might be able to broaden your perspective and realize, okay, I can see why people are telling me this. Or I can, I, I see the market from a different angle now. And then you might make a slight adaptation or iteration. It is a long process. So you have to be patient. It, it is a taxing process. So you have to keep up your mental health. You have to have a support structure I think it, and it all goes back to kind of why you chose the topic and what you're interested in. Uh, if you're just, if you're looking for money or fame, uh, startups are not the option for you. That's not, not a good option. Um, it's a lot of tinkering and frustration and failure. And what's your pitch? My pitch is the, <laughs> we're the first ever database for students. Uh, we're the first ever database for university research labs. And we're bringing specialized software to a sector that, has been left behind in the past 10 years or so. So there's Blackboard and other ed tech solutions for all your classes that you take, and yet graduate students don't have that resource. So professors up until this date, they've hodgepodge a bunch of different things together. And now we're bringing in a platform that will hopefully go on every research computer in the country, and we'll be able to help them with inventory, uh, bringing new students into the lab, getting them funding, managing lab operations on a day-to-day basis in a much more efficient and uh, intuitive platform that currently is out there. That's all for this week. Visit honors.uconn.edu slash podcast to tell us about your favorite class at UConn, share feedback, and enter to win a long-sleeve honors program t-shirt with the code word macaroni.